I invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. I'm taking some time uh, this time of the year just to sort of highlight, again, some of the um, wonderful, deep truths of the gospel. And a uh, few weeks ago, we looked at Romans 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here in 1 John chapter 2, we find out uh, why isn't there any condemnation? for those who are in Christ Jesus. And uh, John is writing then to um, this church, small church, in a hostile world, but giving them a confidence of what they have in Christ. We're going to begin reading at verse 5 of chapter 1, but our text will be verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Let's begin chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's ask God to bless his word. God in heaven, thank you so much for the gospel truth, and I pray that tonight we would have ears to hear it, my Lord, that our hearts would not be dull and dead to these glorious things, things that angels long to look into and delight in, and Lord, um, the thing that gives you the most glory and in in praise, uh, the gospel of, of God's salvation for sinners in Christ. Help us to love this truth. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Well, it's been a great summer. I hope you've enjoyed uh, some times of uh, vacation. Maybe uh, some of you have uh, traveled. Uh, maybe some of you had the opportunity to uh, travel out west and see the Rocky Mountains. I thought I remember someone um, being out there this summer. I want, you, I want you to imagine having seen uh, the, the beauty of the Rocky Mountains and coming back home and, and a friend asking you, so, well, uh, you know, how was it? Uh, what were the mountains like? <coughs> And, and you said to them, well, you know, there's some, there's, there's just some big hills out west there. Well, if you've ever, uh, if you've ever actually seen the Rocky Mountains, particularly the farther north you go, um, if you would describe the, the, those mountains as uh, hills out west someplace, it, it's, not, it's not false in and of itself. They are hills, I suppose, and they, they're definitely out west. But, but it's just an incredibly shallow, superficial description. It hides the glory of the mountain as much as it describes it. It doesn't give your listener any sense of the, of the reality of it. They won't get any uh, sense of the majesty of, of towering cliffs and thundering waterfalls and what um, mountain pine-scented air smells like and the soul-satisfying quiet of a hidden mountain meadow. They won't have any sense of that, you see, in your definition. So while it's not wrong... 
It is utterly unhelpful and doesn't move anyone to respond to the mountains the way a person ought to respond to the glory of a mountain. Well, the same is true when we, when we come to definitions of the gospel. One of the uh, realities of the church of our day is that um, we, we're, we're not good at describing the glories of the gospel. If you ask a common Christian to explain uh, what the gospel is about, they'll most likely say something like, Jesus died for my sins. Well, that's true, right, as far as it goes. It just doesn't go nearly far enough. It's, it's exactly like trying to describe a mountain by calling it a hill out west. It glosses over the glories of the gospel, the, the intricacies, the, the majesties. It, it hides the, the heights and the depths of the love of God. And, and if we talk about the gospel that way, it will, it will probably produce a yawn instead of producing what it ought to produce, which is astonishment and worship and questions. Are you sure? It, that sounds too good to be true. That's what it should produce. And that's why it's so good to read the, the, your New Testament particularly, because when you read the apostles, you'll notice that they use rich, varied language when they're talking about what God has done in Jesus Christ. They, they use words that are, that are heavy with theological content and saturated with spiritual significance. They'll use words like justification and redemption and atonement. And they'll use words like we have in our text tonight. Uh, Jesus, our advocate, and propitiation. Again, I, I doubt it's a word that we have used recently. It's, um, I, I doubt it's a word that you've ever used in the definition of, of the gospel. And yet, it's essential part of it. J.I. Packer actually says, Has the word propitiation any place in your Christianity? In the faith of the New Testament, it is central. Propitiation, who knew? Central to understanding the gospel. Well, we're going to look at that tonight. Why would it matter that you know a word like that? What difference could it make? John's writing to uh, these beautiful new Christians. He loves them. He's, he's, his joy is to share with them the joy that he has in Christ and he writes in verse, two, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin, so that you do not sin. John's not proposing that it's possible for a Christian to live a sinless life. He's just said, if anyone says they're without sin, uh, they're lying. And they're making God to be a liar. Christians do sin. But John wants to, us to know that, that God's response to sin is both He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, chapter 1, verse 9. And God's grace is sufficient and, and uniquely equipped to free us from sins, to help us grow. That the, um, John, you see, believes that the gospel is not just about forgiveness, it's also about transformation. And that the, the grace of God is a grace that both washes clean and it's a grace that empowers for a, a new way of living. It's important that we keep both those things in mind. The church often errs in its understanding of grace um, by getting the nature of grace wrong 
Um, saying that uh, grace is God's response if you're trying your hardest. Grace is what God does for people who do their best. So we get the nature of grace wrong. No, no, no. It's God's response to people who've utterly blown it. It's a free gift. But sometimes people who come awake to the freeness of grace, the true nature of grace, sometimes forget about the purpose of grace, the, the agenda of grace. God's grace is, is to wash away our sin so that, to the end of. He wants us to grow in holiness. He wants to change us. Dane Ortland wrote a, a, a little book called Defiant Grace. He says this, the grace of Jesus is defiant. It is not the decaffeinated grace that pats us on the hand, ignores our deepest rebellions, and doesn't change us, but high-octane grace that takes our conscience by the scruff of the neck and breathes new life into us with a pardon so scandalous that we cannot help but be changed. So as we're growing in in our understanding of grace, you're going to find that there's things that you just can't do anymore. The grace of God is too great. The love of God is too magnificent. And John is writing now to say, Christian, I'm writing to you so that you do not sin, so that you can walk more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And to that end, he gives us two words, two truths about Jesus, Jesus as our advocate and Jesus as our propitiation. And we're just going to take some time tonight and just, um, just taste the sweet juices of those two truths. Jesus, our advocate. I'm writing so that you do not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. The Greek is parakletos, one who is called in to help. One who specifically is called in to help uh, to take on our cause, to take on our case. If you uh, are, go into a courtroom, you want someone there who is able, who knows the language, knows the rules, and, and someone who is going to advocate for you. Well, the, the wonder of the gospel is that in the most important case, court, uh, court case of your life, the court case that will decide your eternal destiny, you are not there, Paul, uh, John says, alone. We have an advocate there. And I want you to know several things about him. First, his, his patrons, his clients. Notice, uh, this is an advocate for us as sinners. If we do sin, we, the people who've sinned, have an advocate with the Father. This is an, an advocate who only takes the cases of moral failures. He only takes the cases of guilty people. He's not interested in taking the cases of people who are without sin. People who uh, are morally successful. He only takes the cases of, of people who are, are failures when it comes to keeping the law of God and obeying God. He, he takes cases of people like, like, like Jacob, born with this bent, comes out of the womb grasping his brother's heel. He was, he was born conniving, born scheming, and that trait follows him all of his life. He's for people like David, who wasted incredible spiritual privileges. God's charge to David after David's sin is astonishing. God says, I gave you all of this, and if you needed more, all you had to do was ask. Why did you despise the Lord in taking Bathsheba? All those spiritual privileges, astonishing graces that David threw away. Or sinned against. 
Jesus takes cases like that. Takes cases like uh, the prostitutes and the tax collectors of, of his day. People who had made awful, devastating choices in their life. Um, undoubtedly at the moment thinking that it was their only choice or the best choice. And yet, and yet choices that would devastate them physically, relationally, and spiritually. He takes cases like that. Cases like the Apostle Paul. People who've committed unbelievable crimes against God. Paul was killing Christians thinking he was pleasing God. He was a terrorist thinking he was pleasing God. Jesus takes, you see, cases like that. Those are his patrons. And he argues those cases in the presence of God. Notice his place. He's an advocate with the Father. John wants us to see Christ at the right hand of God. When we see him there, we often think of that place as a place of authority and rule, and it is, but it's also a place of advocacy. He's there to intercede for sinners. Who is to condemn, Paul says, Romans 8. Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised to life, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us sinners. So, so we have someone in the right place. He's in the courtroom. He's in the presence of God the Father. And notice his persuasive power. This is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus, what a great title for Jesus. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the one who's advocating for you and for me is none other than the Father's only begotten Son. Begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, and by whom everything was made. This is the one whom God says, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. That's our advocate. He's the Father's Son. And he is the one the Father sent to be the Messiah. So, so Jesus, you see, is not arguing with a recalcitrant or reluctant father. He's not trying to convince God to do something other than to try to change God's mind. This is the Father who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that wonderful to know that when Jesus stands before the throne of God in heaven, he stands as, as Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the sent one, and he's the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. In old days, people would have titles like that, the courageous or the timid, whatever it might be, right? You'd have your name and then your defining characteristic. Well, well this, is, this is our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, and this, this speaks to his case that he can make, because there's another matter to consider. If he's going to be our advocate, it's fine and good that the judge, um, the one on the throne, is his father, and they have a good relationship, but does the advocate have a case? The best defense lawyer in the country has to have a case of some sort. Well, yes, he does have a case. He's a powerful, beautiful, effective plea before the court of divine justice. His argument goes like this. Yes, the law demands obedience. And Father, your glory deserves nothing but obedience. Your beauty, your holiness deserves nothing but perfect, day in, day out, perfect love, perfect obedience, perfect worship. That is what you rightfully deserve, Father. And this person, 
has never done that. Ever. And not only that, the truth is that this person left to themselves loves sin. Loves to despise your law. Loves to trample on your character. He loves to ally himself with the devil, with the evil one. That is the truth about this one here. And so you see, the the argument is is not that this one for this reason or that reason in and of themselves deserves anything less than the judgment of God. The argument, you see, is that Jesus says, but Father, I am the righteous one, and I have taken the place of this one. I went to the cross and died for this one, and I've imputed my righteousness to this one. And so what you see is Jesus is arguing your case. He's not arguing your righteousness. He's arguing his. He's pleading his. Father, I obeyed the law. I loved you with all of my heart from eternity past and every day I was here on earth. I loved you with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, and I did love my neighbor as myself. And I offered that life on the cross in, in, in place of his life and, and her life. And Father, I plead then that you give to this person, this sinful person, all the reward that belongs to my righteousness. That's what he pleads. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers they ever plead for me. Friends, you have an advocate. When the devil tries to condemn you, refer him to your advocate and the plea that he makes. When your sin grieves you and burdens you, remember your advocate. When it seems impossible that God could forgive you, remember that the the, the plea is not about your righteousness. The plea is about Jesus' righteousness. It's a wonderful, wonderful source of assurance and peace. But there's something more that's taking place here. And I'm glad that John continues on because one of the tendencies in the Reformed faith, and it's a good tendency, but it has a possible backside to it, is to emphasize the legal aspect of salvation. Uh, and salvation is a legal issue. So terms like atonement and redemption and justification are legal terms. They, they take place in a court of justice. And, and the, the gospel is a legal issue where God imputes the righteousness of Jesus to me and, and lays my sin on Jesus and Jesus dies bearing my sin. It's, it's a legal matter. But it's not only a legal matter. So Jesus not only paid for my sin so that I am innocent, but he turned aside the Father's judicial wrath so that I am loved and reconciled and adopted See, there's a relational aspect to it. You know this is true. If you, if you ever sinned deeply against a friend or a family member or a spouse, I mean, you sinned deeply. You wounded them greatly. You have, maybe you broke the law. But there's a legal issue no matter what. You at least, right, you owe them uh, apology. You owe them uh, to ask for their forgiveness. If you've taken something that belongs to them, you, you, you owe it to them to do whatever you can to make that right. There's a legal debt issue that has to be resolved. But that's only one part of the issue. What about the relational part? How do you, how do you, undo that. You see, you violated the law and things can be done to maybe set that right, but how do you, you've also violated a friendship. You violated a love. How is that resolved? 
See, there, there are many Reformed Christians, I, I believe, who sincerely believe that the legal issue of their salvation has been resolved, but they are not at all convinced that the relationship issue has been resolved. They, they believe Jesus died for them. They believe he imputed his righteousness to them, but they have serious doubts about God's disposition towards them, his love for them. And they hope. They, they want to believe it. They hope it's true. But it's hard to believe it. See, they don't, they won't really get the full beauty. And I include myself in this. I'm from a good long line of Dutch guilt and, and struggling with how could it be that God could relationally be reconciled to me? Well, the answer to that question is the word propitiation. It's a strange word for most of us. It was unfortunately left out of the NIV. So if you grew up with the NIV, you didn't have the word propitiation. It said, uses the phrase, an atoning sacrifice, which is true, but it's only partly true. Part of the truth. Um, and, and partly we don't use the word propitiation because we live in a sort of a sentimentalized world and propitiation uh, speaks about the wrath of God and we would just soon not think about the wrath of God. We're not quite sure what to do with the concept of a wrathful God. But it's an essential word in the story of the gospel. Packer, again, makes the case, it's at the very center. Listen to what he says. Were I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, three words, the whole gospel, you can tweet this, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. Adoption through propitiation, and I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. Adoption through propitiation. Those are profoundly legal and relational terms. Adoption isn't just a legal matter. It is that, but it's also profoundly relational. Propitiation is a legal and relational issue. Because, you see, it answers the question, how can we be reconciled how do we, to God? How do we escape the wrath of God? The Bible is... Um, it's full of language about the wrath of God. I, I'm, I wish I'd have written this down. I didn't. I did write it down. In the, Old, in the Old Testament, there are 20 different Hebrew words that underscore God's indignation against sin and evil. Think of that. How many words are there for snow in the Eskimo language? Like 50 because they, they deal with it all the time. There are 20 different Hebrew words that underscore God's indignation against sin. 20 different ways of describing how much he hates evil and what he pledges and promises to do to evil. So the wrath of God, you see, is his, is his holy fury towards what is evil. Nahum 1 verse 2, one example. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. That's our God. And that's a New Testament thought as well as an Old Testament. The wrath of God, Romans chapter 1, 18, is being revealed, manifested from heaven against all the ungodliness and, and wickedness of men, un, the unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God. If you read the book of Revelation, you'll read about the, 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 uh, God treading out the winepress of the fury of his wrath. You see... God's wrath in his, 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 
his disposition, his, his hatred of what's evil. John Murray says this, the essence of the judgment of God against sin is his wrath. It is his holy recoil against what is the contradiction of himself. It's God's necessary response to sin because of exactly who he is. It's his holy recoil against what is the contradiction of himself. And propitiation, you see, is is the gospel's answer to how we are saved from God's wrath. So when, when people say, you know, Jesus saved me from my sin, okay, that's, that's, that's true, it's partly true. It might be more true to say Jesus saved me from the wrath of God. Jesus saved me from God, from the judgment that, that was coming my way because of the character of God and the sins that I've done. So Raymond, Robert Raymond says, propitiation is the turning away of God's wrath. Think of this now. The turning aside. The flood is coming and a a great gate sweeps out to to provide so that the, the, the flood waters rush past and you're saved. So propitiation is the turning aside of God's wrath by the taking away of sin through a sacrifice. The taking away of sin through sacrifice. Why is it that almost every pagan religion has some formula for dealing with sin and it almost always involves blood? Who taught them that? Well, their conscience taught them that. That crimes have been committed and and, and gods are vengeful and and that blood is what is required to appease. Well, that's a biblical idea. A sacrifice has to happen that, that takes away the sin, that satisfies the justice. And that's exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. So propitiation, you see, is where the full glory of the gospel shines. It, by his death, that not only has the legal issue been resolved, but the, the relationship issue has been resolved. The wrath of God against you because of your sin and my sin has been put aside because the sin has been taken away. And now the gates open so that the, the flood of God's grace and mercy and kindness and love forever and ever and ever can pour over you. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. The doctrine of propitiation, John Murray again. The doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of the wrath. It was Christ's to so deal with the wrath that the loved would no longer be the objects of wrath and love would achieve its aim by making the children of wrath the children of God. God loved you before you were born, and God was committed to pouring out all of his fury of his wrath upon you because of your sin, without a Jesus. It's not legal fiction. It's not just an idea. So you see, Jesus reconciled us then to God. Uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 18, right? Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God. Salvation is primarily about what Jesus has done to make things right with God. Robert Raymond again says, a major revision has to take place in the way we think about the gospel, because we think about the gospel in a manward sense, directed primarily towards uh, what it does to us or for us, 
It washes away our sin, and that's true, but, but why does that matter? It matters because there's a God who's going to judge sin. So he says salvation in the New Testament, has a, in, in the Bible, has a fundamentally Godward reference. That God is angry, God is angry with the sinner, and that this holy outrage against sin has to be dealt with if the sinner is to escape punishment. And for that reason, a death had to occur on Calvary, a death of a righteous man. Raymond says, when we look at Calvary and behold the Savior dying for us, we should see in his death not first our salvation, but our damnation, being born and carried away by him. Have you ever thought of that? And when you look at the cross, you see your damnation happening before your very eyes. You see someone suffering the full outpouring of all the judgment and wrath and fury of God for your sin. It's happening right there. And that's why there is now no condemnation for you. Because Christ bore all the condemnation. I um, I remember watching a documentary about some people going through officer school. I think it was for the Army. They were candidates to be officers, and it was near the end. These are highly dedicated people, very motivated people. And one of the things they would do, they're running down this stream, and they turn a bend, and I'll never forget this. There was a, in the middle of a stream, a culvert. Uh, so the stream maybe was up to your knees, and then there was a culvert about six inches above on this end, and on the other end of the culvert, about eight, ten feet long, it's under the water. And what they had to do, the culvert is probably about this big, at the most, and th- these are, they're carrying their, their, their pack. What they need to do is fold their arms, lie down on their back in the water, and slide through that culvert. Every fear I have, right, is caps right there. And you got a you got a, a senior military guy screaming at you to make it happen now. You've got like thirty seconds, or you flunk out, and it's done. If you walk away, you walk away. And here comes this. Um, I had to been the arm. Here comes this uh, this lady, uh, about you know five foot, slim as, and she just wraps her arm, lays down her back, and just slips right through that culvert. And here comes a six foot five guy, a great big guy. And he comes around the bend and he sees that culvert and he starts shaking. And then he starts crying. And the officer's screaming at him, Get in the water, get in the water. He's got 30 seconds to decide. And at the end of it, he just walks away and he's done. And I said, (laughs) I totally understand. I would have ran out of the water. <laughs> I mean, everything, claustrophobia, fear of drowning, whatever, uh, it's all right there. But what if this happened? What if, what if it was the one thing you wanted more than anything else in the world, and, and yet all your fear was right there, and you looked at your physical makeup, and you looked at that little culvert, and there simply was no way, and it was the end for you. Every fear you had was dying right there. The, sick, the seconds were ticking away. And what if someone could come up and say, officer, I'll do it in his place and, and lay down in that water and slip through the tunnel and, and the officer was willing to receive it. And so when they came out the other end of that tunnel, it was you coming out the other end of the tunnel and you were able to pass on through. 
wouldn't you love that person? Wouldn't you be ecstatic about that person and about what they endured so you didn't have to endure it and all the privileges that come to you? Wouldn't for the rest of your military career, isn't that what you'd point back to as the source of your success? Friends, Jesus Christ went to do the thing we could not do because our damnation was not going to produce our salvation. All of our hopes for eternity come to a dead end at the law of God. We simply don't have what it takes to pass the bar. And yet Jesus Christ, the Son of God, endured exactly the thing that we had coming to us and yet could, would, would not have saved if Jesus Christ suffered the fury of the wrath of God, suffered your damnation and my damnation, so that, the, the propiti- that God's wrath is propitiated. The water of judgment moves aside, and the water of grace and mercy just lavishes itself all over you, just cascades over you. Wouldn't you love that Jesus? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to just delight in that Jesus? Wouldn't you want to embrace that Jesus? Wouldn't you point to, for the rest of your life and for all of eternity to that Jesus and to that event as the, the only reason for your success, the only reason that you exist as a person and as a child of God? There's no other explanation. When you came to the place of judgment, someone stood there in your place and, and took your place. And wrath has been turned aside and you are now loved. That what's happened in the gospel is not just a legal issue, it's a relation issue. It's a a relational reality that God the Father, because he loved you, gave his son for you, and now he is free to love you in spite of your sin, in spite of your failures, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your flaws. He is free because of Jesus Christ. That gate swung open, and it will stay open for eternity. The wrath of God has been propitiated. And you have an advocate standing at the right hand of God who continually says, yes, Father, this one's mine. This one's mine. Pour out your grace upon him. Shower your mercy upon her. This one's mine. What a beautiful, marvelous salvation. Let's believe it. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, we deal with such incredible things. Such, uh, such holy things. The blood of the Son of God offered as a sacrifice, the righteous one offered up for the unrighteous. So that by his death and in his resurrection, we who were the rightful recipients of wrath could become the rightful recipients of grace and mercy and love forever. God in heaven, you know every heart here tonight. And I pray, Lord, are there any here tonight who are still running away from this God and in their pride, in their rebellion, in their unbelief, maybe simply cannot believe that this could be true for them. Lord, I pray that you would show them it's, it's absolutely true for the greatest of sinners. It can save wretches like us. And Father, I pray that tonight would be the night they would humble themselves and fall on their knees and embrace Jesus. And for those of us, Lord, who who are in trial right now, and, and it's hard for us to believe that you love us, I pray that the cross would stand as the the proof that can't be argued with that you love us, that you are for us, that the gates of mercy have swung wide open, and all the showers of blessing that our Lord are 
are free to be enjoyed, and even the trials, God, are in your hand. I just pray, Lord, that we could believe, we could believe that you love us, that we could trust it, we could rejoice in it. Help us, Lord, to believe the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.